Hey, State of Amorica fans, our good friends, the Amoricans, the Black Crows tribute band, is going to be making a very special appearance at Daryl's house in Pauling, New York. That is Wednesday, February 5th, 2020 at 7 p.m. General admission is $15 and reserve table is $25. Be sure to get your tickets. This is going to be a show you won't want to miss. Thanks a lot. Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast, State of America, hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of America podcast. I'm David, and I'm here, as always, with my good buddy, Ian. Mr. Rice, how goes it? I'm all right, man. How you doing? Man, I can't complain. So you, uh, you've you been out of town. You got back. We recorded a, a an episode a couple of nights ago, and then we recorded one tonight. Things are back in, in full steam, and uh, Black Crows Universe is spinning forward. Um, I guess kind of one of the newer things that's come out that we haven't um, talked about is it appears that... Mark Ford has gotten involved with the gentleman. I believe this is his name, Eric Lindell. Yes, West Coast Reunion. West, West Coast Reunion. Uh, nobody knows how that's going to sound. We haven't heard any of it, but uh, it's piqued my interest. What about you? Oh, absolutely. I, I for now, for the end of time, uh, I will follow anything that Mark does and support anything that he does because he's a great guy. He puts out great music, and uh, I encourage people to do the same because uh, live music needs needs to stay live. So. So get out there and support Mark, especially if you enjoyed, you know, the Magpie Salute. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of speaking of the Black Crows universe and new music, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. Uh, I think I've talked on here before. I'm a huge Marcus King fan, and he uh, put out a, a solo album called El Dorado, and uh, Dan from uh, the Black Keys produced it. Man, oh, is that right? I, yeah, I am. I, just, I didn't know he was the producer. I am just blown away by this album. The last Marcus King album that came out was my album of the year for that year. It's going to be hard to beat this album. It is so good. He is such, his development is such beyond his young age. I think he's 22, 23. There's, there's a country song on there. There's four or five songs, honestly, that sound like they could have been recorded in like Muscle Shoals that have soul R&B feel to them and some horns and things like that. And there's, I think, two or three rockers on there but man you know he he's part of the black crows universe now after as the crow flies and if you like good music i, I promise you go get uh el dorado's the name of, and then the album before that uh carolina confessions is just amazing that the song goodbye carolina is one of the best songs i've ever heard in my life but are you are you that familiar with him or i'm not a hundred percent familiar with his stuff but you know in uh anticipation of the fact that i knew you'd bring it up i uh i checked out his uh el dorado and it really was it's a, it's a fantastic album he's got a really lot of good soul based stuff on there kind of like you said and it's really a, a well-rounded album and and way beyond his you know 22 or 23 years or so uh yeah i mean I, i'll echo david's sentiment and encourage people to uh Check that one out. It's definitely a great listen. You know, I know we haven't heard openers or anything for the Crows tour, but I just have my fingers crossed that we're going to get Black Crows, Blackberry Smoke with Marcus King Band opening. The Blackberry Smoke ha- is, has built a rabid fan base 
Mm. Uh, I mean, rabid. And uh, I saw them. I, they've come through here three times in the last year and a half. And uh, this summer I saw them on the Tedeschi Trucks Band Wheels of Soul Tour. And I, I, it was really upsetting because a thunderstorm came through and they had to delay letting people into the venue. And then they had this curfew. So their set got cut short by like by about 15 minutes. But they have a lot of the Crows vibe as far as like switching the set list up. They do cool covers. If anybody's in town and wants to play with them, they come on stage and play with them. But I, I really, you know, there, there's going to have to be some bands added to this tour. And if they're going to do it, I would much rather it be something like that. Take on kind of the spirit of the Tedeschi Trucks Wheels of Soul tour. So, Ian, um, we have long wanted our, our, our guest that we're going to have this week. Uh, and a lot of people have asked us to have him on. And uh, I tracked him down before Christmas. And surprisingly, he agreed to it. We finally got to talk and Skype, see, and interact with the one and only Hager. Look, he's got a he's got an online persona, and he's got you know people have a made up mind about his reputation. Um, I can tell you, I've talked to him on the phone twice this week and uh, here now, so I've talked to him for about three hours over the course of this week. This is a guy that really genuinely cares about his craft, and that is you know documenting these shows and. He genuinely cares about getting the music out to people. He can be brash and abrasive, and as he kind of says in here, that's just kind of something that he does. Uh, I did not find him to be like that at all in real life, and honestly, uh, like you know, we said, uh, really thanked him for all he's done because so much of the music that we have came from him. And honestly, the last couple of years, so much of the information has come from him. And uh, I don't think there's an ego involved with it. I, I think he genuinely wants people to be able to hear the music. Oh, with, you know, without a doubt, he uh, he's a genuine guy, and uh, you know, I, it was great talking to him. He definitely is very genuine about what he does. Uh, you know, he's a he's an, an archivist, and uh, he takes what he does seriously, and he really does. It's clear that he's interested in in sharing music with uh, the fans of whatever particular group you know he happens to be taping and interacting with. Uh, you know, primarily Black Crows people and that and. And if he's not sharing something with you, it's it's because of a good reason. So you know, I'm 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 glad he came on, and I'd love to have him on again and again and at any time, because uh, he's got interesting stories to tell, and he tells them in an interesting way. So I don't know about you, David, but I think this uh, begins the first in a series, hopefully. Yeah, he said he he would come back on in six months or so if if it generated enough interest, and I think that's going to go without saying. It is. Uh, I can't wait to watch the message board meltdown when this one comes out. It's going to be, uh, yeah. he was a really, really good interview. Was, he was very thorough and, um, it kind of went into the method behind the madness, so to speak a time or two. And, uh, I'm really glad he agreed to come on and, and we're hoping that this will help, um, some other people, uh, from the black gross community, um, that, uh, online community to, uh, maybe nudge them to coming on. So we won't say their names, but, uh, we would like for that to happen. So, Ian, you have anything else before we go to the interview? No, I think that pretty much sums it up, and it's uh, it's definitely a lot to take in. It might be uh, worth a, worth a second listen, but uh, some great stuff in there. We hope you guys enjoy it. All right, everybody, uh, thanks again to Hager for coming on. We we had a blast with him. So here he is, the one and only Hager.
Well, Ian, today is a uh, is a big day, one that um, we've been kind of working toward for a while. When we started this podcast about nine months ago, uh, you and I would get uh, inundated with uh, people asking us to have people on, and uh, outside of like obvious the obvious people, members of the band, and and so forth. Uh, there were a couple other names that just kept coming to us, coming to us, coming to us, and I told people that I would work and try to get those. So it is it is a great honor to be able to finally welcome to the State of America podcast a man that doesn't need a first name. He only needs one name. Ladies and gentlemen, the infamous Hager. The horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, many other uh, uh, aliases over the years. Oh, right? yeah, Furberger and... Sonic Reducer and Mangina and the Jerk and <laughs> Spider-Man Jammies, Only the Bottoms, Avery Johnson's Grill. Every thousand posts, I was oh, like... I forgot about Avery Johnson's Grill. That was every like... thousand posts, it was like the Phoenix, and we had to create a new name. I didn't hide behind it. I made sure everybody knew from post number one who it was, but it just because my name was Steve. It wasn't, you know, all these... Everybody hide behind their, their names and try and pretend they were somebody they weren't, and I just... I didn't roll like that, I guess, so... Well, Steve, like I said, we, we have had a lot of people ask us to have you on. Um, you were front row for a, a, a big part of Crow's history. Some say the, the, the best couple of years in the Crow's history. But before we get to that, kind of how did you get into uh, to taping? Um, you and I talked a couple of times this week, and I believe you said the, one of the first shows you taped was a Guns N' Roses show. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, the... the what the degrees of separation, Mr. Kevin Bacon or whatever, it has nothing to do with the crows, but there was a lady who managed our museum here in Fairbanks named Susan Hedrick. And she's probably one of the top, top five Led Zeppelin collectors in the world at that time. And she was friends with a guy who I'm no longer friends with named Dave. And he got really into Zeppelin from her. Then she moved off to Washington state and he had gotten a D3 recorder because Ozzy was coming to Fairbanks in 92. And then that ties into the Guns N' Roses Metallica thing because I was, you know, 20 years old and wanted to go see the Guns Metallica tour. Hey, Dave, can I borrow your Walkman? And there's a whole story that goes along with that Phoenix show that is not suitable for a Amorica podcast. But uh, <laughs> it just, you know, listening to that kind of got me hooked. And then there was a magazine called Goldmine Magazine, and you'd look in the classified ads in the back. And, I mean, the, one of the coolest things is those people that I, you know, first traded tapes with, and I was very unorthodox in my methods. I'd just, you know, take 30 or 40 of my masters and spin them and put them in an envelope and send them to somebody and say, hey, you know, you don't have to send me 40 back. I just want you to see what my quality is. And but a lot of those friends that I made then are still friends of mine today. Like there's a guy named Simeon Morell who's uploaded stuff on Dime for decades. And he lives in New York. I was in Chicago. He happened to be in Chicago for a UFO show. And I didn't even go to the show, but I drove an hour to go meet him because I'd talked to him online and through the mail for 25 years, you know, that kind of thing. And I think the Crows probably would have been 1995. And I was going on a crazy trip with like Tesla opening for Skinner and Page Plant and White Zombie and Van Halen and good buddy Paul G in Oakland, Illinois, one of the guys I met in Goldmine. Go to as many crow shows as you can. And I was able to I think it was Mike Watt with Foo Fighters and Eddie Vedder and Foo Fighters and Eddie Vedder both canceled in Santa Cruz. And then I drove down the Pacific Coast Highway. There's a shout out to old C-Rob there. And got to the Pantages in L.A. And I went to that first show, and it was pretty damn good. And then that second show, I 
I could be mistaken. I didn't pull the set list up, but I want to swear it was Black Moon into Exit, and I'd never heard Exit before, and that pretty much sealed the deal. And I had a, I extended my plane ticket, went to Berkeley, went to the Monterey show. You know, it's totally classic when you go to see a show and the Black Crows are sandwiched in the middle of a Bob Dylan, George Clinton Oreo, and you tape George Clinton and you tape the Black Crows. And then, no, nah, I don't want to listen to that mumble mouth Bob dude. And you leave, you leave on Bob Dylan. You don't even stay for Bob. I mean, that's how, that's how into the Crows I was at that point. And then the Three Snakes tour got announced in 96 and the, uh, the uh, side business sales were going well, I suppose, would be a simple way to put it. So I just, you know, I'm not going to invest that in CDs or a car and wrap it around a tree. Let's go to some concerts and uh, put 12,000 miles on two rental cars between the first week of the tour and the last 10 shows of the tour. And you guys have read the stories and heard the tapes and everything from that. There's no real need to rehash it other than... You know, just made some friendships. There was myself and probably five other tapers that covered 90% of that tour. I mean, Scott Weber, I've made up with him since, just to show you things come full circle. And Eric N. Tall Taper, James Dean, he's no longer in the scene or anything. Mike Wolf, Datfly down in Florida, pretty much covered all the South stuff. And then uh, in 97, I got to go to the last four furthers. And, you know, didn't really understand that the end or the writing was on the wall for the end being the end or whatever. But uh, it was just a real a, a whirlwind of a time. I mean, I think I hit every Black Crows show in two time zones between for the Three Snakes tour and further. When I looked at a map or whatever, every single one in the Pacific and Mountain time zone I taped in 96 and 97. So that was pretty cool. And then it just, you know kind of turned into 98 and i bought tickets for three of those and i think the first experience was at super toads in des moines iowa and it was an old sears that had been turned into a concert venue and it looked every last little bit of it and chris came out in his pimp suit and his sparklies and about 30 minutes into the show i looked over to james on my right and eric on my left i mouthed what the f is this I, you know, I just couldn't even it was so far removed and then I went the next night in Columbia, Missouri. Boa was at, the, at that show. He let me patch out of his deck. And I was so depressed that I just went upstairs. The Blue Note in Columbia was, like, still in a sense of renovation. But at the very upstairs, they had, like, six theater seats shoved in this little cubbyhole. And I sat up there and smoked weed for two hours and watched the Oddly Version play seven Southern Harmony songs. And it was a different set list, but it was also a different band. And I ate my tickets for St. Louis two nights later and went and saw them by default at a festival that, I mean, it had like Monster Magnet and Ramstein and Kenny Wayne Shepard and Joe Satriani and Creed and Anthrax and the Black Crows, one of the weirdest festivals I ever went to. <laughs> yeah, then I swore them off in 1999. They got Jimmy Page, which is a pretty hard way to swear them off. And I'm like, well, I got to go see this. And I had made inroads with the ticket agent who had scored me a bunch of killer tickets, not for the Crows per se, but for other shows when I was taping. And he got me 12th or 13th row for both of those. And those were just a blast. I mean, you could tell the band was having a good time and everything. And Were you a fan of the band from the beginning? No, I, well, that, I, that first album, I always just used to joke that, like, 
the hard to handle and twice as hard would piss me off because they'd interrupt my Enter Sandman Money Talks video run on MTV. You know, <laughs> I was like, who's that guy with that annoying voice? And who's, you know, I just, I, I, you know, the music's okay, but God, but then, you know, you're reading Rolling Stone, you're up here in Alaska, your media sources are limited, but you read in Rolling Stone about the Southern Harmony sessions and we hammered out 30 songs in eight days and I wore a necklace made of human bones when we did it. And it was, you talk another, it was a different, like the shake your moneymaker band compared to what they were two years later. was like a complete 180. And that was pretty much, you know, I, I was in my infancy. I mean, I'm 20 years old. I'm living in Alaska. Don't have a really a network formed or anything. And I wasn't into them enough that I'm going to base a plane trip around I me. Mean, I was much more of a, pantera metallica you start out with your metal and then you branch out or whatever but you know i just i really wasn't aware of how cool the shows were and that they were changing the set list or anything but being friends with paul 93 94 and branching out a little bit and then he knew i was going to california when the crows were there in may and just go to as many shows as you can and so that kind of pretty much sealed the deal seeing how different the set lists were and i i you know i remember um interacting with you on message boards and things like that around the time that they kind of folded up in O two and then through the, the, you know, the, the uh, new earth mud things. And then I kind of lost uh, track here after that. So, I mean, what were your, what was your take on the, uh, the Luther Dickinson period well, and all that? Yeah, that was the real irony too, that, you know, I brought us up to 2000. So then of course I was never online. I didn't even get a cell phone until 2008. <laughs> and, in 2000, in like a 14-month period, broke up with a six-year girlfriend. My dad died. My grandma died. And, of course, there was a decade of substance abuse there, which caused me to miss the 05 and 06 tour. But the real cruel irony, it was not planned. I We got a computer that Christmas. took me a couple of weeks to get online. And I happened to join on January 8, 2002, the day the hiatus was announced. Had no idea. <laughs> then you combine that hiatus... With my stellar internet persona, I made a lot of friends those first couple months. Let me tell you, boy, that was a good time. But I had no idea that the Crows announced the hiatus the same day I joined. I mean, I wasn't online. I wasn't connected. I had no, I was some guy up in Alaska that finally got his internet, you know, hooked up to his dial-up and was stoked like a pig in poo. But, you know, so then, you know, but then I forged friendships. I could rattle off 100 and 200 message board names, but those people are still friends today, too, which, you know, you could consider another benefit of this trip or journey that we've been on is, you know, I'm still in touch with a ton of these people, whether it be on Facebook or if I decide I want to go down to the States, I've got almost a Rolodex of people I can call up. Hey, you want to hang out? You want to do this? You want to do that? And I mean, that's probably been one of the biggest, as an only child of only children, no aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no brothers, all you guys have kind of turned into my family. Little tear runs down the cheek. <laughs> we, we we can't have you on here without asking you about your internet persona. People are, are hot or cold on you. There's no there's no lukewarm. When you, when, yeah. Whenever I, you get online. I don't like apathy. Apathy is lame. I, I, want, I want the A or the B. I want to, as I mean, long as there's a reaction, we're golden. I would I would love to do a scientific study of how many posts on the A3 board at some point have F. Hager yeah. in, the, uh, in, the, in the thing. Like yeah, it's migrated into that. That was my way of just taking the, the wind out of the sails of the haters. Because if I encourage you to say that, where do you go from there? Right. <laughs> you know, like, what? oh, yeah, he wants us to tell him to F off. So, like, what's, what's his deal? It just kind of, you know, it, it kind of takes 
the wind out of their sails. In my opinion, I could be mistaken. I mean, I don't swear by that or anything, but it just, yeah, I, I told David earlier that it just was my way to, to schluff off the whiners and the, and the, the people that I just probably would not want to be in the same room with. And then you get past the bluster and all the foo-foo, and then you find out, well, he's really not that bad. Still don't get it. I still don't understand it, but he's really not that bad. <laughs> so what was your what was your take on the uh, the later years of the band? Did you follow? Did, were you following them then, or? Well, I I followed it online. I mean, I was to the point I you know being a good friend and a fan, and you make the friendships. I mean, I had tickets for the whole O five Fillmore run, but in the middle of that substance abuse run, I just. Didn't really feel like leaving the house, but Wolf and Wolf's husband, there's a couple old message board names. They wanted to go to the Fillmore, sold them all my tickets for cost. Same with Vegas. I had tickets for the two Vegas 05 shows in October and just couldn't get myself out of the house. So I pawned those off on somebody for face, you know, and I, but I followed it. And I just, at that point, the connections in the taping community were such that that sense of urgency. Oh, if I don't get on the plane and tape that Lafayette show, it's not going to exist would be like an example of that knowing that 05 and 06 was so well documented that also contributed besides the substance abuse and other stuff that you know ha- haven't done any haven't drank or done any of that in 10 years it's just the hippie lettuce from now on but uh <laughs> you know you, you lose a dad lose a girlfriend lose your grandma and the mother is unreceptive and just doesn't want to talk to you and it just kind of was a recipe for disaster but pulled myself out of it didn't have to go to any any eighteen thousand, I, I I don't regret it, but I don't want to go back to that place. And but then I think oh nine, I really wasn't into War Paint or that tour. But oh nine, I think they were still touring. But Luther was comfortable enough, by my opinion, that they were varying the set lists. And I had a birthday, had just sobered up in September of that year, and I think they were playing Seattle and Portland. So I went down to those, and it, that was. That was the realization where I could watch Adam in Seattle and just watch him lay down the most beautiful feathers and then break out the cleaver for a wiser time, and I didn't understand. I just couldn't <laughs> figure out how a guy could know 90% of the catalog, and we've debated that on the message board for years. Why? Why? I don't know why. I think it was you that originated the the oven mitts nickname, if I'm not mistaken. Ham hands and oven mitts. <laughs> yeah, but we. I, I don't know if I could take true credit because we were bouncing around a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I, I was definitely in the mix when we when we just. <laughs> you know, I I just he just reminded me of Schroeder from the Peanuts with one finger on a three finger keyboard during that Wiser Time <laughs> solo. I just, I, I guess he was given that artistic license, like this is your ten minutes to shine, and I didn't understand. I still don't understand, but I'm sure he's a great and guy. <laughs> I'm not trying to, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I don't understand that.
the 10 tour with the dual sets, you know, opening with an acoustic set, that kind of sold me. And I probably went to 10 or 11 of those. And that was when I got the video camera because I didn't really do video at that point because the degradation of the VHS tapes on a couple generations. I'm like, why am I going to have boxes and boxes of these tapes that look like colored blurs on the screen? But with digital, didn't have that problem. So, uh, Got the video camera and, you know, it just kind of snuck up there in the Fillmore and really shouldn't mention anything. So nobody is, is looked upon in a bad light. But <laughs> there was a bunch of the fans that kind of put a buffer zone around me. There was a different security crew at the Fillmore every single night, which was really cool because that meant the guy that busted me on Wednesday night wasn't working on Friday night. And I had a <laughs> chance to get away with it again. And of the five shows I was at, I got busted at the beginning of one, got busted at the beginning of the second set of one and the other three are complete and a lot of people have really liked those videos i mean you know and they did midnight rambler for the first time and the stones encore the last night and then of course you know we got the big bad hiatus soon after that of sorts or i mean it wasn't a hiatus but they just weren't touring regularly and then there was the the 2013 and the the now infamous ipod tapes that have leaked and the story that goes behind those with how they were supposed to whip out wicked crazy set lists in 13 and then a certain band member walked into the room and said we're not going to do that we're going to play it safe and i won't point any fingers or anything but we got the sterile 13 sets with jackie christopher nelson green and then the hiatus kind of came about and i kind of lost interest which would lead us into magpie i suppose if i remember right too um at the very beginning of the the magpie I, you weren't in, into it at first right not at all, and I can I can explain that the best that I can is I, A, was not aware that John was sick at the beginning of that, and B, I was not aware that he had to learn 80 songs on the fly, and <laughs> so I kind of observed from afar because, you know, Mark's playing with Rich again, how could you ignore that, and then I heard the two shows from Chicago that Taper Joe taped, and you heard, like, Bewildered into Bitter Bitter You, or I can't remember what it was, and I'm like, wow, this is a different band. And then I'd started dating a girl in Indiana, so I kind of combined the long-distance relationship into following Magpie and did 1996 all over again. And Ooh. a few people, I mean, just after you know, five shows in California, brought the video camera, snuck it into the film, or got just, just like I did in 2010, same style where the stage is framed and it's distant. I'm like, I could do this better. And, of course, the infamous picture of Mark and Rich with their, you know, smiling red shirt, blue shirt or whatever. And that came from Santa Cruz. And I finally got the gumption when I flew back down to Grants Pass two weeks later. Hey, Rich, do you mind if I film you guys? And I filmed those with extra cameras up through Seattle, flew home, flew back down to the Midwest two weeks later. And he was walking across the street in Bloomington. And I went up to him real quick. Hey, do you mind if I patch into the soundboard? There's where all your soundboard sound checks have been coming from um nice and of course i was specifically asked please do not share them people want to talk about hoarding and please do not share these until after the high water albums come out at the very least meaning maybe don't share them at all and then of course with what happened i figured it was probably safe to put them out there and they've turned out to be a real treat because there's a whole lot of stuff on there that we never heard live i mean primordial versions of high water songs and bye bye blackbird from grants pass which i think would be a great outro for the show and i mean there's just there was moments during those sound checks you know different solos 
goes on song and throw that in with no crowd noise because it's a soundtrack and they, it's almost like having a whole a whole slew of radio sessions almost and yeah those yeah. have been very uh, enjoyable thanks for passing those on my thing was to push them in, in every fashion possible at, for on my nickel for as cheap as possible but not have it sound cheap if that makes sense i mean you know hundred dollar cameras that i picked up on ebay that were 500 new when i bought it new and then i got newer generation ones in 2016 and the picture was grainier and the colors weren't as rich and i'm just like <laughs> why would i so i spent 550 on that new one in 16 and i took another 500 and bought five of the old 2010 camera and what's really funny in, in my opinion is that right around 2010 when that video camera came out cell phone cameras became huge so all of these people probably bought $500 video cameras, used it for 10 minutes, and threw it in the closet in the box. So you're basically <laughs> yeah. getting brand new video cameras online for 100 bucks, you know? And you saw the results of the January 19 ones. That was when I finally had four of the same camera where you didn't have any of the variation between the angle switching. And Anderson was a godsend in that. Big props to Crow's BR for mixing all that stuff so promptly and getting it ready to share. But... uh that's the one cool part about the Magpie is that stuff's never going to die. Did Rich ever ask you for any of the video? No, I, I for I gave uh, Martina a drive that had all the footage on it that Anderson threw together so the band could watch it. And I never heard back as to whether whether or not they watched it or anything. But a, a, a copy of it did get forwarded to them that they didn't have to watch on YouTube, that they actually had the hard files in their, in their hands. Now, you're... Um... You you pretty much were with them for their entire run without you know getting names or anything like that if you want to avoid that but just what what was your take on the trajectory of the band from the start to where they wound up and ultimately finished? Seventeen was definitely a celebration of everything. I mean, Mark's solo career, Rich's solo career, the Black Crows music, the cover songs that they pulled out that they didn't play when they were the Black Crows. And then 18, you know, well, we got an album to tour behind and I, I still, you know, everybody's up in arms or shocked that the Crows are back together. And I'd still go back to Rich originally saying he wanted the High Water tour to be one tour. And I don't know if the record company convinced him to split it into two. I don't know if the band had discussions to split it into two. But they had, you know, a pool of money that they were working from, and then all of a sudden you got to split that pool that's supposed to finance two tours into three, and then you just kind of observed little things as the next 18 months progressed that, I mean, they definitely looked a little bit burnt out in January, but I'm, I've never been a groupie, even though I had a pass with all access. I probably only went backstage three or four times at all those shows I went to because... My gig was to get the music to you guys. If I'm standing backstage till one o'clock in the morning running my gap, I might not make it to the next city. I might, I might wake up late, et cetera. So my thing was just to tear down, get in the car, maybe at the end of a leg, run backstage real quick to tell them thanks for everything and get in the car and get on to the next city or whatever. But uh, it was a little bit awkward in February. And I just kind of, you know, the whole thing with me saying that Magpie was going to tour in 19 or 20 was more of a want versus any inside knowledge or anything right. like that. You know, you see something, you really enjoy it. You want it to continue. You're not going to all of a sudden go sour shorts on it. Well, I guess I could because I'm me. But, you know, you hear things and you just you want it to happen and you realize, hey, it's not going to happen. And, of course, Rich saying, don't worry, everything's going to be all right, probably added a little bit of gasoline to that campfire. 
because it didn't really turn out to be all right. But in a way, it is because we have all this music to still dissect and listen to and watch and in the comfort of our own home. You want to go to a Magpie show, you can pull YouTube up on your app and your 65-inch, and it's right there in 1080. Well, let me let me ask you this, Steve. I know you you follow them, you know, a lot of the shows. What was your opinion of the original material? The Magpie? Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, I did get to have conversations with a couple people, and I mean, I was fully aware before pretty much any of the 19 shows or the 18 tours started. High Water 2 was the rock record. They saved all the good stuff for the second one. And I mean, I just, I prefer John. You know, I get it. It's, you know, the irony of I don't like drama in a band. I might like to create it on a message board, but I don't like it in a band. And it just, you know, to see Rich smile and the relaxed nature and them joking backstage. And I just I don't think that really happened a lot with the Crows. And it just seemed like Rich was in a really good place. But at the same time, you also do have to pay your bills. And I understand it. I just I guess as a longtime fan, you kind of wish that he would have come out and said something we're a pretty understanding lot we fans and yes. you know to just kind of act like magpie never happened is kind of i don't want to use the word disingenuous but if i'm even saying that right it just it <laughs> felt a little cheap i guess but i do understand it i mean it's not like something where i'm gonna beat myself up or something i, I wish he just would have come out and said you know hey we toured for two years we've put out two albums we're gonna need to put this on the back burner for a while and you know, we're going to go our own separate ways and who knows in three or four years we meet back up. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it just, a, a 15 city goodbye tour for three weeks. And that, you know, then you, then you rub it in that, you know, Chris is doing green leaf rustlers that and unicorn California movie, this, and it's like, how come Chris gets to dabble in all his side projects and the magpie fans have to pretend that the two years they invested into what they did didn't happen. It's just kind of weird. It's like, I, you know, I obviously the 2020 Black Crows outing, obviously uh, there's a large financial aspect to it, but do you buy into, you know, the fact that they're actually trying to patch things up as brothers or do you think that's just uh, smoke and mirrors? My gut tells me it's smoke and mirrors. I mean, I just, I don't trust Live Nation. <laughs> Who does? You know, it's just kind of one of those, I I think that Live Nation has a business model, and I think that a lot of those artists in that business model have died in the last five years, and I think Live Nation is kind of trying to manufacture another band they can plug into that model. I mean, it just seems, you know, a, a key thing to me is you got this Facebook page that's been around since 2008, but there aren't any posts prior to October of last year visible. Why would you discount your prior history? Because most fans of bands are fans because of the band's history. I mean, right. It's just kind of, I don't know if cart before the horse is the right analogy or what, but it just doesn't, on the surface, it doesn't feel very genuine. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've been on the, uh, the fence about it myself. I'd like to think, just from a human standpoint, that maybe there's some, some genuine nature to that. But, Reconciliation uh, of sorts. Yeah. But it's it's hard to say. I would go to Anchorage because the Crows have never been to Anchorage. I'm under the impression Live Nation's trying to make a make a presence in Anchorage, even though they don't own any venues there. But I can't see, you know, basing a trip around going to go see what they're putting out at this time. Now maybe if the band they got together gels and 
they do a Southern Harmony tour and they put out a couple of promo clips that actually look kind of interesting. Yeah, I could maybe see, but I, I don't even really have any interest in hearing Shake Your Money Maker front to back. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> you know, you're taking the sixth favorite album and putting them in 20,000 seat sheds because it sold well. Well, the reason it sold well was because they put that band in front of Aerosmith and Macaulay Shanker Group and ZZ Top and Robert Plant and Hart and all these other bands that got them some exposure where people are like, oh, I like that catchy, hard-to-handle song, and they picked it up. They didn't buy 10 million copies of that album because that album kicked butt. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, in my humble opinion, it just, you know, whereas the 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 subsequent three albums after that really had a much more of, they created an organic, they reinvented themselves. And, you know, I guess in that spirit, they're reinventing themselves again. I'm just not really interested in a subpar version of the wheel. Well, Steve, yeah. you were on the forefront of breaking all of the news about the reunion. And you were as about as close to 100% dead on as could be. And I remember when you started making those posts, you caught a lot of flack. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think you have been vindicated uh, You know, now. Um, when you first got that mysterious email, does it go through your mind, this is fake? And then if it's not fake, do, are you, is this oh. something I, is this really, really what it, what, what it appears to be? That's the one beauty of having been a taper for 25 years. You form a network over time, whether it's ticket agents or Live Nation employees or studio rats or whatnot. And after I got that email, my first thought was, I need to confirm this. So that was when I started, you know, reaching out to people that I hadn't talked to in at least since 2010 because I really wasn't into the 13 tour, so there was no reason to talk to them. And, I mean, before that email came, I had two different people on two different coasts reach out to me on Facebook with vague versions of what was in that email. Then that email showed up less than 120 hours later. And I'm like, well, okay, one person, two person, three people. Then I reached out to a couple more people. Yes, Adam got a girlfriend, doesn't want to tour as much anymore. You know, oh, Adam got fired. No, Adam didn't get fired. And, you know, there just was a lot of hyperbole, a lot of this, that, and the other. And if I'm going to post something like that, there's going to be the research that goes into it before I press the enter key because I don't want to be wrong. Right, right. I did want to be wrong, but I don't want to be wrong. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just because, you know, I wanted to be wrong because I wanted Magpie to continue, but I don't want to look stupid by doing so. I mean, and then those two people I reached out to turned into 10 people more reaching out to me and me reaching out to some other people. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I mean, it, I, I don't know why me, why this guy in Alaska, I still don't know who sent that email, but it, 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 that email crystallized the rumors I had heard up to that point. So then I, it, the email came, it's time to reach out and see if I can get to the bottom of this. And it was pretty much as true as true could be, other than I don't think anybody predicted the tragedy with Neil. But uh, everything else that was forwarded to me was pretty much spot on. One of the but, things I think that was so weird about what was going on was here you have all these rumors about the CRB and that that turned into rumors about the crows and magpie. But yet the CRB, after those rumors came out, put out an album, they toured magpie, put out an album. Uh, I can't, I don't know if I can go ever think of that happening 
with uh, two members of a band basically have side projects, put it out, and then immediately have to go away from that and go back to the old group. And it's almost like Servants of the Sun, the CRB album, I thought was the most accessible one they've done since Big Moon Ritual. And then Magpie puts out the best of the two High Water albums, and we have almost no promotion. And now I have a hard time listening, honestly, to High Water 2 because I go, we never got to see these songs played live. They didn't tour, and they aren't together anymore. And it's same with Servants of the Sun. It's just, it's weird that both bands disbanded after they'd recorded that al- an album and hardly did anything with it. Yeah, it, it was just a really weird... 2019 was a really weird year to be a Black Crows fan. I mean, they're just... <laughs> uh, it it was it was a very... I said, I think Rich wanted to just do one tour. And, you know, who knows? Maybe when he put Magpie together, the, the end game was a 30th anniversary tour. Maybe he thought by forming magpie and keeping mark and sven sharp and maybe chris is going to come around and then you turn into the high water two thing and i'm not going to say that a crow's tour was leveraged against high water or vice versa but i think in january of 2019 maybe high water was plan a and the black crows was plan b and by the middle of that year the roles reversed because Live Nation threw that piece of paper in front of them and said, we're going to take care of this and take care of that. I mean, it, you know, this is this is just me throwing darts from having paid attention to the music industry for 25 years. I don't, you know, that's not any insider info or anything, but just from the way that everything played out, that kind of seems to be the most logical guess as to why. It looks like quite a few of the, uh, the shows are underselling. So, I mean, what, what's your... Take yeah. on that situation. They were never a shed band. They've almost got to get a, a really good opener to generate some interest. Or, I mean, you can't tell the crows, okay, we're going to feature you and then package them with an equal. That's not going to go over real well unless the money paid out is still the same. Um, I just, I, I, that, that, that logic, I don't understand how they really truly thought, but. You know that's part of the live. That's part of that Live Nation business model we've heard about. I mean, I've never seen the hard numbers, but I don't think they're going for sellouts. I think they've got a mark of sixty-five hundred or eight thousand or whatever that magic number is. And if we get that many people in there between the parking and the beer and our percentage of the merch, we're going to come out golden. We're not going to have to hire as many people to deal with the full shit. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how their number. I mean, I know their stock keeps going up. They must be doing something right, but I just I don't think went into this thinking it was going to sell out. If that makes sense, it just it's you know they've got these foreigners and these thirty eight specials and these nostalgia acts that they like to throw plug into their you know if we need you for forty shows and this is how it's going to be. I don't I don't know that for sure. Yeah, I well, mean you know it has to make some kind of logical sense somewhere to them, you know. <laughs> Let's go back to um, 96, 97, because uh, for, you know, people like us, that's, for the most part, is everybody's favorite tour, you know, or 05, 06, or the Amork or, or bus tour. Kind of what were your, your thoughts on, like, the set list and, and, you know, how they were playing and just the general vibe of those, of that whole tour? Because it was different than any they've ever done, pretty much. Yeah, well... I suppose if there's one moment that would in, encapsulate, if I said that right, the whole <laughs> thing was standing in line in Berkeley and the 90-minute scrum that it took to get in and get to our seats, 
And three nights earlier, I had gone to see Mr. Crazy Horse, a.k.a. Neil is God, in Concord, California for the Broken Arrow album. And I'm standing at that show for the Crows, and I'm watching it, and Bruce Captain comes out, and they do the wiser time, and that's totally badass. And then all of a sudden, they break into big time.
talk about bands and I don't know if I've ever seen a band break out a cover song that wasn't a single or a hit from an album that was released six weeks prior and that to me kind of set the tone for where they were at is like this band is so nuts they're taking a non-single track and playing it live five six weeks after the album came out this is insane I mean I couldn't and then of course they broke it out a couple more times I did get to see the last one I think in Little Rock and that was part of the onus of me coming to Rich. I didn't ask for much, but I was like, hey, dude, I know a lot of us really dug big time when you played it in 96, and sure enough, that got added to the set list later on. That was, that was one, one, one little feather I could throw in the cap, I suppose. I always wanted to hear them do it again. And it seemed to go over real well when they played it every time I saw them do it with Magpie. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, man, because I was really thrilled when they broke that out again. I couldn't believe it. So. <laughs> That was 100%. I, I had a list of songs in front of me, and I slowly crossed out this, that, and the other. And that was one of the three that remained. And it, it just seemed to fit where they were at, too, you know, with, with the band that they had and the backing girls and everything like that. And I wish they would have, I wish that Mark and Rich would have traded verses. That was the only thing I would have told him because I think Mark would have 
would have laid some laid some snakes on one of the one of the choruses or something, but still was damn good. Of all those shows that you saw uh, at that time, what was your favorite one from a playing and setlist perspective? And then what's your favorite one as far as the quality of the recording you got? Well, if you had to go with performance and experience at a show. You start with when they were in Berkeley. That was a 15-song set. Reno was a 15-song set. And they were working their way. Then I think Portland was 17. Seattle was 17. Vancouver was 19. I actually sent the original set list to Crow's Base. They had to cut two songs out of Vancouver because they came on stage late probably because they were enjoying the Vancouver products. (laughs) And uh, they had a strict curfew there. So then by the time they hit Denver, they were up to 18 and... Boulder, I would have to say Boulder for a set list because BR549, that was their final opening set and Chris came out and did a song with them and then the entire band came out, I think, at the end. I know it was Sweet Baby's Arms and Cash on the Barrelhead. I can't remember which one was Chris and which one was the band. I really wasn't into BR549. I was in the midst of my, my partying days, so I was proceeding to drink lots and lots of beers. And the BR549 set isn't even complete because I'd go in the bathroom to take a leak, but I made sure to not be in the bathroom during the two Crow songs for bonus tracks. I think they recorded that show for a webcast, which for 1996 was really rare. You didn't have a lot of webcasts going on in 1996, because I have the, the guy at the very beginning talking about, if you see a little green dot, that's us doing a webcast or something, something. Just that set list, I think there was big time in there. I think they did She. It was in you know the Fox Theater, 625 people, and it was just a really really punchy sounding show. I mean, you could tell they were having a good time and stuff. And then for best sounding, I mean, I don't have to go back to my tape list and look, but the Austin 96, the night after Dallas, I just happened to find the sweet spot in that little wooden gymnasium. And uh, I think they tore it down a couple of years later. From reading Steve's book, he said that though a lot of those 96 shows were kind of sparsely attended and it was kind of a, a a down vibe for the band sometimes did you get that impression while you were on that on the on that run the only show that i remember that seemed sparsely attended was phoenix and i have the performance magazine which is a a radio trade you had to pay 400 bucks a year i had a friend who worked at a radio station he'd give me the old issues i actually could if if we really wanted to have fun i could uh pull those out and in the very back venues would report sales attendance capacity and i have the actual like down to the exact dollar they took in for those shows and i want to say that phoenix show was 62 63 percent attended Hmm. two-thirds sold out beyond that i remember great crowds now of course taller hooked me up really good i was really close in the front i don't think i turned around too much to look back but i don't I don't remember a sparsely attended 96 tour. Mm. I mean, occasional show. But, I mean, you know, Pantages in L.A. were well attended. Fourth and B in San Diego seemed like it was sold out. The show in Vegas was, I mean, I just, but that that Phoenix show, because there was like the 18-hour drive from Austin back to Phoenix. I almost missed the show. I woke up like 10 minutes before Mule hit the stage, and it was like a half-hour drive to the venue. I walked in five minutes before Mule left the stage. But I just remember, I think I had third row or something for that, and lots of space down on the floor. 
Like, even if that many tickets sold, I don't think that many people showed up. Speaking of Government Mule, Steve, you know, there, there's a lot of bands that the Crows have helped out over the years. And, of course, Government Mule helped Chris out when um, uh, he had put the New York Mud out, letting them go out on the road with them. What are... What do you think are some of the the best opening bands they that they've gone that they've used that you especially shows that you've seen because Government Mule and Drive By Truckers always kind of stick out for me. Well, yeah, Mule is definitely. I mean, with Mule opening for them, I mean that was I I taped probably Mule with Woody thirty times because of that. You know, the first ten being those ninety six, and I based a couple trips around just Government Mule shows and. Another one when Woody passed away, just like when Bobby passed away with Blues Traveler. Don't ask me about that phase of my life. But uh, the bass players that drove a band, and once the bass players were dead, the band just wasn't quite the same or whatever. I actually was in New York City the weekend Alan Woody died there. I was going to two Pearl Jam shows in ACDC in Jersey over those three days. And I remember turning on the radio and hearing that he died there in New York City. I was like, holy fuck. I mean, that, that was a guy that, or a band, I guess, then when I watched him, you had three equals on the stage. Woody could lead him, Alan could, or Warren could lead him, Matt could lead him. And then after he passed away, I loved that O2 tour when they had Dave Schools and all the different bass players rotate for the was it deep water instead of high water, I think, then. But uh, after O2, to me, Mule just sounds like a slick Vegas act other than when they do their special shows because those are always pretty cool when they do the Pink Floyd show or this, mm. that, or the other. Those are all. The Halloween shows they've done since are usually have pretty good set list, but just an average government mule show. I just I Warren does a hell of a cover. I don't know if I can count on one hand the originals of him I like. <laughs> it just it, different strokes for different folks. Just because I don't like it, don't mean it ain't no good. But well, did you did you ever um, did you ever get into like widespread panic and fish and and follow them and tape them? No, panic is a great show to be at because they definitely have more of a rock vibe than the top ramen vibe of fish. But uh, I I have the bootlegs or the shows I recorded to Panic, and I, I just don't listen to them. It all just kind of has, it doesn't rock quite as hard, I guess. I mean, I respect them. I mean, I did I did go on a little Panic run in 99 and followed them for three or four shows. And like I said, it's a great show to be at, but I just, as far as listening to the bootlegs, it doesn't really translate that way for me. So as far as uh, as far as uh, yep. tapes go and things, you know, every once in a while you'll uh, you'll drop a few uh, nuggets on the uh, on the community. You got anything in the pipeline? Or I still have not dug into the CDs yet because they're not terribly organized. <laughs> right. I mean, there is a Black Crows box that all the Black Crows stuff went into, but it's not collated right. Um, the the two probably if uh, there's two things that I would like to do obviously when these sound checks are done I'd like to create a double or triple lost magpie album because I think the material's there you know you could do one disc of unplayed songs soundboard you could do one disc of the audience sound checks because the quality is a little bit different and then you could do a third one of just like alternate takes whether it be an early version of the water song or a song they played live a lot but because it's a sound check, it's a soundboard. You got a different Mark solo. You got, you know, you could easily make a three or four disc compilation out of those sound checks. I think. Mm. I would like to go into the totes and find. I'm ninety eight percent sure, even though the Brothers of a Feather '06 tour was no taping, that all of those shows were sent to me a year over the course of the next year or two, other than maybe one from San Francisco and one from L.A. 
It seems like I have the entire Brothers of a Feather tour, including some of them on soundboard. And I would like to leak those out there. What is, uh, what's your take on the rumors that we're about to get a Brothers of a Feather tour? I haven't talked to my one person that would know for sure, but I would definitely lean toward yes because of the unfull sheds. They might need to do that. To gen- I might be planning for generating buzz before they have to add a second band to possibly cut the amount of money that is going to Rich and Chris. Mm-hmm. Like It would be cheaper to put Brothers of a Feather out on the road. Oh, we're going on the tour the Black Crows this summer. Generate some money versus, oh, we're going to add Dirty Honey because Mark Diddy also manages them and we're going to have to pay Dirty Honey, so we're going to have to take some of your money, Chris and Rich. I would think that would be plan B if the Brothers of a Feather doesn't. But again, that's gut feeling. That's not for me having talked to anybody. I don't. I don't know if you how active you are on like Instagram or whatever. But uh, the lead singer of Dirty Honey posted a picture at one of those uh, surprise shows, and he had on like a black crow shirt. And it was. I think he took the picture with Chris, and I immediately <sighs> went to my head: Is is Dirty Honey who's going to be the opening act? Well, I was fully aware back in June of last year that Mark Didia manages both the Black Crows and Dirty Honey, which that would probably take care of his pockets rather well. Double dipping. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. They are the first independent band to secure a number one spot on the billboard. I mean, that's impressive. We we got Greta Van Fleet all over again, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think they sound better. Yeah, no, they definitely do have a better sound. I'm not I'm not trying to compare the bands. I just I guess as we get older and you watch these new younger up and comers, we're a bit more jaded in our in our observations from afar or whatever. But no, they're definitely Bishop Gunn is another one. Oh yeah, they're a good friend down in Alabama. She's really big on them. Yes. Didn't they get to open for the Stones or something? They've opened for the Stones, they've opened for Guns N' Roses. They're actually here from Mississippi where I'm from and I've seen them I saw them open for Marcus King and then saw them open for Government Mule. Both times I went, the the first show I saw him with Marcus King, I walked out with a CD. The next show I saw him with Governor Mule, I brought like three other people, and they walked out with CDs. They are they are really really good, and like yeah, they've opened for the Stones and GNR I think twice. So they've definitely got a lot of steam behind them. So we'll we'll see how that goes. I mean, that's just another dirty dirty honeyish type band that I could think of currently. That you know, up and coming. I think they've got a buzz underground. Like they they're not quite as good being independent making it to number one like dirty honey but they're following a similar trajectory maybe kind of thing or they're building it the old-fashioned way well steve um we told you we would try to keep you about an hour if if you get to a point where you have a great reception and want to do a part two i'm sure we could you know he gets oh he didn't answer this he didn't answer that i would be amenable to doing that Oh well, a, a, a Q and A with with Hager. Hashtag Ask Hager. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, hey, I, I, we know uh, you've got a lot going on, but we we appreciate really appreciate you taking some time. And it's kind of you know, like Ian said, seen you on the message board for twenty years, and you know, just kind of know you by your your social media post. And it's kind of cool to get a lot of these backstories and uh, and see that uh, your persona is not like it always is online, so to speak, at times. It was an honor to be able to get the music out to all you guys in the last couple of years in the fashion that I did it. I tried to make it exciting, I, you know, what, posting the set list as it happened and all the little silly things that I did. And I didn't care what people thought about how I did it. I just wanted to make, you know, make the Internet fun again, you know, celebrate music, celebrate being friends with people. 
Well, Steve, we definitely thank you because you have my uh, my collection has benefited greatly from you for probably the last twenty years. So, at Absolutely. least at least for me and Ian, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I say, I mean, you know, I, that's the cool part about music. I I like to think I'm blessed. I have friends on both sides of the aisle when it comes to politics and stuff. And you know, usually you can take those divisive issues of our of our humanity and put them to the side and find something in common. Is this thing they call music? Agreed. That's kind of nifty. Well, well, Steve, <laughs> since you're the since you're the guest, we always allow our guests to give us a song to play out. So, well, we will we will be throwing that that uh that Bye Bye Blackbird from Grant's Past Magpie soundtrack because it just seems like it's an appropriate sign off for what we got. Thank you, Rich. No no hard feelings, dude. You did your best. You know, it was great to see you and Mark on stage again. And hopefully you guys can do it again sometime because I'll definitely be there. Right on. I think a lot of us will be. But yeah, that'll 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 be the outro song. Okay. All but, right. Uh, they never did play it live, and hearing them do it during the sound check, you know, that would be kind of a a rare track to to sign off with. So seems appropriate. All right, Ian. Uh, I think that's going to be it. Our big thanks to uh, the one, the only Hager for coming on. Uh, it's going to make a lot of people happy when we drop this episode. To play us out, the Magpie Salute. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Stay tall, everybody.
Hang on, it's a State of America bonus track.